0: Welcome to Two Way Street. I'm Bill Niggett. If you're a regular listener, you probably remember that not long ago we rebroadcast a show that originally aired when Harper Lee's second novel, *Go Set a Watchman*, was published in two thousand and fifteen. The novel shocked many fans of *To Kill a Mockingbird* because in *Watchman*, Lee created a backstory for the beloved Atticus Finch, which recounted his support for segregation and his involvement with the White Citizens Council. One of the guests on that show was Joe Crispino, who's especially well-suited to talk about Atticus. Joe is the Jimmy Carter Professor of History at Emory University. He's particularly well-versed in Southern history since Reconstruction, and Joe grew up in Mississippi. I learned a lot from Joe when we did that show about the two faces of Atticus Finch back when Watchman was released. But now he's published a book that gives us an even deeper understanding of Atticus Finch and the times in which he would have lived. In the process, he's written a compelling study of the evolution of white Southern attitudes about race and segregation. The book is Atticus Finch, a Biography. Recently, Joe and I sat down to discuss the new book in front of a live audience at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. Here's that conversation. Welcome to uh, Two Way Street, Joe Crispino. Here you are in front of a live audience at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. We love having all of you here as well, too.
1: Nice mm-hmm. Thank to you. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. It's great, to be, it's great to be at the Carter Library. This is a great institution for this city and the state. So I'm really thrilled to be here.
0: So I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I've probably been looking forward to it since before you even knew you were going to write it.
1: <laughs> Maybe so.
0: And what I mean by that is, like many people here in our listening audience, when Go Set a Watchman was published, we were scandalized when we saw who Atticus Finch had been during his life. And to reconcile that Atticus Finch of *Go at a Watchman and the paternal figure in Mockingbird, we needed your book to help us understand that. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you, thank you. I I mean, you're right in that uh, this book could not have been written without Ghost at a Watchman being published. I have been interested in this uh, figure of Atticus Finch and in this novel for, for many years, uh, because of, I'm a, I'm a political historian primarily, and I've written a lot about this, the South in this period and its transition from a segregated so- society to a desegregated society. And there is no other kind of cultural production that looms as large As this book as as it's so you know it's it's a kind of um it's become a kind of uh racial primer for middle school and early high school kids and so many people read it in the country and around the globe and this is how people um are instructed in kind of racial morality and how they learn about the history of racial injustice in this country and so it's 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 such a big part of our culture and, and atticus finch is such a prominent figure in our kind of political culture that I've wanted to write about it. But we only had the novel, right? We only had this novel and, and the things that Harper Lee had said about the novel around the time that it came out and when the movie was being uh, promoted. And then the last time she spoke publicly on the record about her fiction was in an interview in March of 1964. Yeah. And then that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was nothing to go on. And, and uh, when Ghosts Set a Watchman came out, um, I was very eager to get a copy. Tried to get an advanced copy, couldn't do it, you know, strict embargo. But um, when I read it, uh, I realized that I had a lot to say about it.
0: Yeah, I think it's important that you 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 said if without ghosts at a watchman you might have written a, a great essay about <laughs> what *Mockingbird* meant in terms of a de- depiction of the South across the United States, across the world, for that matter. I but wrote without that. Watchman,
1: I wrote that. I wrote course. an essay back in 2000 about that. But without *Watchmen*, yeah,
0: we didn't need the rest of this. That's so, right. So let's yeah. talk. All right. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, you tell us in the very first sentences of your book, Atticus Finch. Uh, Like the Crest child himself, Atticus Finch was born on Christmas Day. Harper Lee was in New York City. She did not go home to Monroeville uh, to spend Christmas there. Uh, What year was that and what was happening?
1: So it was Christmas 1956, and Harper Lee uh, got this great gift from her friends Michael and Joy Brown, um, who gave her a year off from her job as an airline reservationist to write in, uh, in an uninterrupted, fashion. So Harper Lee had been writing short stories, but she didn't have the time to commit herself to an extended piece of fiction, and this is what her friends gave her, this this incredible gift. And so she started writing immediately, and in the, within the first several months of 1957, she produces this manuscript that she calls Ghosts at a Watchman. And then her agent, Maurice Crane, who she had been introduced to by... Uh, Michael Brown shops this novel around and to several different houses. All of this we know really uh, for the first time because of documents that are in the archives of HarperCollins, uh, Harper Lee's longtime publisher, and no one's had access to those uh, before this book. And so we know that several publishers passed on uh, uh, Ghost Set a Watchman, and while that book was being shopped around, Harper Lee, not wanting to you know, to waste any of the, this precious time she has, starts this other novel, um, which, is, which uh, follows the same characters but 20 years earlier. So, and, and she was writing this kind of childhood material. And Maurice Crane, who was a very close advisor to and and these documents in the HarperCollins papers make clear how important Crane was to her as a literary advisor. Yeah and crane says look this stuff is just really lively it's 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 fresh it's the it's children's it's the, voice, the children's material you run with this and so it's that's when she starts writing and she gets a lot done and and the novel that Lippincott eventually signs is not uh, a ghost set a watchman but it's this unti- they sign is an untitled manuscript And that that is the one that becomes uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. But it's important to realize that she always understood these as two distinct works that were part of the same narrative arc, following the life of these characters.
0: Well, and particularly, of course, following the life of Atticus Finch. She uh, modeled him. (laughs) after Amasa Coleman Lee, A.C. Lee. Who was A.C. Lee?
1: Well, we know this because she talked about this at the time, that her father was a, was a formative figure for her and, and a rough model for the character of Atticus. Amasa Coleman Lee, like Atticus Finch, was a small-town lawyer and state legislator. Uh, but unlike Atticus, he was also the owner, an operator of, of Free Press. He owned the newspaper in Monroe County. The Monroe Journal? The Monroe Journal in Monroeville, Alabama. And he owned it for 18 years and no one had really gone back and looked at that newspaper. And there's no guarantee in going back and looking at it that there would even be an editorial page. You know, a lot of those small town newspapers in that era would not have had an editorial page or they might have written one, you know, during election season or something like that. So I just dipped in in March of 1933 because that's when Franklin Roosevelt was inaugurated, right? Yeah. And so I wanted to see what was there. And I was over in Montgomery in the archives there, and it was, I just, I I read a month's worth of papers and I realized I'd struck gold, you know, because he was writing three, four editorials every week. And not just about local politics or state politics, about the evolution of the New Deal, about the rise of fascism in Europe. This man who had only an eighth grade education.
0: Okay, let's unpack some of this. So one of the things I wanted to point out that I thought was fascinating is, as a politician, as a legislator, Uh, He was very much in the tradition of conservative Democrats uh, of his time. Uh, You tell us that his biggest success was passing a bill that forced cities to pay off all their debts and operate on cash only. So in that respect, he was a real, true fiscal conservative Southern Democrat.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And And he was kind of linked with the more conservative faction within Alabama politics the kind of black belt, uh, big mule coalition.
0: Here's a great sentence from your book. You say A.C. Lee was a model for his daughter to write about not because he was ahead of his time, as he seems to be in Mockingbird, but because he was of his time. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I was trying to understand you know, when you go back and you look at A.C. Lee, I mean, when we look at him with our contemporary eyes, you know, the, his blindnesses stand out, right? I mean, he wrote a paper where hardly there's no mention of the African American community in Monroeville. You know, uh, he was very much a kind of racial paternalist. But I'm trying to read those those articles to understand or, uh, how Harper Lee would have seen her father, and I think that you see in in uh, in his writings the way that uh, A.C. That Lee could have inspired both kind of versions of Atticus Finch, both the kind of idealistic figure of Mockingbird, but also the more reactionary, uh, uh, repugnant figure of, of Ghosts at a Watchman.
0: There was a progressive streak in him. You tell us, for instance, that he wrote about the persecution of Jews. He was writing, he wrote about as you already mentioned, Kristallnacht yes. yeah. wrote, and uh, one of the perhaps inspirations for his understanding of what was happening to Jews was the family that owned Katz's department store.
1: Yes, uh, Monroeville was like many southern small towns in which they had one Jewish family yeah. you know who, was the, who owned the dry goods store on the town square. Yeah, so
0: he got anti-Semitism and the dangers of what was happening in Nazi Germany, but he didn't see it as he looked at what were then the Negroes of the
1: South. No, that was utter, utter blindness. But then really during the war years, as so much is uh, changing in Alabama and in the South, as the, there is a nascent, uh, growing civil rights movement in the South and in the national level, this is when uh, he, you really begin to see the Atticus of Watchmen, or, or the, 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 the side of A.C. Lee that would have inspired. The Atticus. of, of In a
0: couple of minutes, for those who haven't read it, we'll, we'll spend a, just a couple minutes talking about what the story of uh, Watchman is and how he is depicted in that, but let's talk for a little bit about the track that both A.C. and his daughter Nell were on in those days. Yeah. Nell goes off to college and she begins her career uh, really writing articles for a literary magazine called The Prelude, I think.
1: That was the one year she spent in Montgomery. In yeah. Montgomery. Yeah.
0: Um, then she goes to the University of Alabama and becomes a writer for Rammer Jammer. I love that name. Yeah. It strikes me that it's a very contemporary kind of name for a publication. It was The Humor Magazine, Yeah. Right. It's yeah. based
1: on a cheer at the university.
0: She and her father both end up in print on opposite sides of a crucial issue of its day, The issue of the poll tax.
1: Well, it was the Boswell Amendment. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it
0: relates to the poll tax.
1: Well, it relates to black voting. Blacks voting. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, So, so this was one of the really uh, fun discoveries is when you're reading A.C. Lee's editorials and then you can put them side by side with what Harper Lee is writing as a college journalist, both in Rammer Jammer and also in the, the newspaper there. In, at Tuscaloosa. And um, the Boswell Amendment was an amendment that it was passed uh, by the Alabama legislature. Basically, to, it was an understanding clause in the Constitution where you had to pass and understand, you, you had to prove to a registrar that you could properly interpret a passage from the Constitution. And this was a bald-faced kind of ploy to uh, block black voting, which was increasing in the aftermath of a historic Supreme Court decision in 1944, Smith versus Allwright.
0: So AC writes that the state would be better served by an intelligent electorate. The amendment would prevent people from being muscled by political bosses. Yeah. Boy, that's not Atticus Finch and Mockingbird, that's for sure. Yeah, what's
1: interesting about his defense of the of the Boswell amendment is that he goes back to this kind of small r republican theory about you know you need an informed electorate right we need a high bar for citizenship for participation in citizenship and he's doing this at a time when the other supporters of the Boswell amendment i mean they are saying the most scurrilous racist white supremacist rhetoric about let's let's not kid ourselves we need this to uh, to protect against black folks voting
0: well Horace Wilkinson
1: Horace Wilkerson is one of who is who
0: what, who did he write for
1: Horace Wilkerson is a is a Alabama lawyer Birmingham he would go on to be a big figure in the Dixiecrat movement in 48.
0: he wrote I earnestly favor a law that will make it impossible for the Negro to vote no Negro is good enough and never will be good enough to participate in making the laws under which the people of Alabama have to live
1: yeah. <sighs> Yeah, and what's, what's fascinating is to see what Harper Lee is writing.
0: Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. She's writing for Rammer Jammer about the same thing.
1: She writes, uh, I think it's a piece called Now's the Time for All Good Men. Yeah. And it's a one-act play, uh, or three-act play. But it's a small little play in which she writes about an Alabama politico named J.F.B. McGillicuddy. Yeah. And he's this preposterous figure who is uh, a big supporter of the Boswell Amendment but then he gets denied the he gets denied the vote by a, a registrar yeah. cuz he can't properly understand it. and he takes the case to the supreme court and the supreme court says well, of all the cheek how can the state of Alabama expect voters to understand to properly interpret the constitution when we can't interpret it ourselves so, you know this kind of thing
0: so now we see the split between father and daughter yeah and
1: you can you can see that that split and you can see you can kind of imagine, too, um, Harper Lee uh, being uh, seeing her father, because he's laboring to try to justify why you want the Boswell Amendment. And it's striking, given how virulently racist so much of that rhetoric was, that he mentions nothing about race. Yeah. And it's almost like he's trying to prove to himself and to his daughter that there is a principled defense of it.
0: And that is part, that's an important theme in your book, The White Southerner Who Believes Himself Like A.C. to be a moderating influence, a calming force, a bulwark against the Klan and the other extremists. And we're gonna see that emerge even more strongly as we talk about your book, right?
1: Well, that's, I mean, that's the way that A.C. Lee sees himself.
0: That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's the way he, yeah. he imagines yeah. himself. Yeah, I'm not suggesting and, no, 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 that's, that's right. the reality. Yeah.
1: yeah, and that's the way the citizens' councils portray themselves right. when so, they come
0: Okay, up. with that in mind, let's talk a bit about Watchmen, just for those people who haven't read it. We know Atticus Finch, Everybody knows Atticus Finch, the great defender of uh, liberalism, of a black man wrongly accused, of a benevolent father ahead of his time. Who is Atticus Finch in *Go Set a Watchman*? And how does the older Jean Louise interact with her
1: dad? So Jean Louise is coming back from New York. Uh, she gets home, uh, uh, and and the big discovery, the dramatic discovery of um, of the novel, is that. Atticus, her beloved father who would never hurt a ground squirrel, this noble man, uh, she realizes that he's uh, joined the citizens' councils and and he's head of that organization there in Maycomb, you know, the fictional county. And so the novel then unfolds in a series of kind of staged conversations that Jean Louise have with with these three men in her life, her her suitor, Hank uh, Clinton, her uncle, Jack. Uh, and then Atticus himself. And so this is one of the shortcomings of the novel is that it's not, it, there's no real dramatic action to the novel. It's just these kind of st- a series of staged conversations. One of the reasons why these editors would have been passing on it. But and, and these, uh, in, these, in these conversations, she's, she's putting forth kind of political ideas, political arguments at the time.
0: And we rem- remember again, this was the first manuscript that she submitted to publishers. This came even before, while she was working on stories that would become Mockingbird, but this is the book that was rejected and suddenly emerged, what, 2015? That's right. Uh, and scandalized a lot of us who thought Atticus was one of the greatest liberal figures in the South. Um, so you, she was writing Watchmen. You tell us, while Alabama was really in turmoil, over Brown v. Board versus Board of Education. Um, and, and and so here's where the White Citizens' Council, I think, becomes an interesting part of the story. The business community in the cities of Alabama, they were likely to support White Citizens' Councils, right?
1: They saw themselves as the kind of principled conservative opposition, the, the non, you know, it would be the lawful opposition uh, coordinated and in doing so they would kind of keep down the hotheads and the Klan and, and be able to manage and control uh, and maintain the, the racial status quo. So that's the way they, they presented themselves and that's the way that they, they, they based their appeal and they got a lot of support in the rural south and particularly in the black belt south, those areas with black majority counties uh, in, in the deep south um, where that's where they were most successful.
0: So what's interesting is that the one, if there's one truly dramatic scene from my, uh, from my point of view in Watchmen, it's when Jean Louise comes to the courthouse. She's come back from New York. She's going to see her dad for the first time, and she goes into the balcony, right? Yeah. No? The, no, you, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And she looks down. Her dad's down there, and that's where they're having the meeting of the White Citizens Council, and she's appalled by what she's
1: seeing. Well, and she's hearing speak this man named Grady O'Hanlon that's roughly kind of uh, pattered on a guy named Aza Carter, yeah. who was in the the, uh, the North Alabama Citizens Councils. eventually leaves them because they're not radical enough and, and, and joins the Klan and eventually becomes a speechwriter for George Wallace. He penned that famous uh, inauguration address where Wallace pledged segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. But what's ha- what's interesting is that over the course of the novel, right, who changes in, in go set of the watchmen? It's not Atticus that changes, it's Jean Louise. Jean Louise comes to see the logic of Uncle Jack and Atticus's position. So that we should really read that novel, because one of the things that stands out to us when we read it in 2015, of course, is Atticus's racism and Jean Louise is is a good young liberal woman who's standing up to her father. But really that novel is an argument about about the kind of principled conservatives within the South that there are decent segregationists, Harper Lee would say later, in a in a you know that there were principled segregationists who could who could still oppose the Klan. That's what a phrase that she would use in a letter that she writes yeah. to a friend. Uh, in a piece that she's writing later in 1961. Well, in
0: a way, something that sort of makes that point clear is that she and her father agreed on Brown versus Board of Education. Right. They right. both opposed it. That's right. And I think you tell us that one of the grounds on which her and her father she and her father agreed is that they both saw the United States Supreme Court as having this paternalistic approach to the people of the South That's who right. really didn't understand how they ought to be living their lives. They both rejected what they saw as paternalism and the North forcing its way of life on them, yeah?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, absolutely. There's there's certainly a, a lot of kind of regional dis- defensiveness.
0: Okay, let's do this. We've gotta take a short break. We're talking with Joe Crispino about his new book, Atticus Finch, the biography. We're here at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library with a live audience of people who I believe probably love to kill a mockingbird. We'll find out if they love Ghost at a Watchmen too. So let's take a quick break and we'll be back in just a minute. Two Way Street, I'm Bill Nigut. Uh, We're here live at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library to talk with Joe Crispino about his new book, Atticus Finch, the Biography. Joe is the Jimmy Carter Professor of American History at Emory University. By the way, somebody in the audience pointed out, uh, it's fascinating to be here when we're talking about Atticus and the White Citizens Council, because we know that Jimmy Carter was pressured when he was a merchant down in Plains to join the White Citizens Council down there. What did he do?
1: That's right, and he refused to join.
0: He refused to join, which was a very brave thing to do at that point.
1: Yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah.
0: One of the important themes of your book, I think, is um, how different audiences received Mockingbird and Watchman. And I, uh, we both agree that there's a passage in which you address question that she was wrestling with and and i was hoping you might read it for us
1: yeah so just to set this up one of the um the arguments i make in the book is that you know uh the ghost of the watchman you know it it fails kind of as a work of fiction and 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 you know but it's a first novel it's hard to write novels right i mean it's it's not surprising that uh you know this would not work but um but it also kind of fails as a work of political critique because essentially I see that novel as a defense of kind of the principled segregationist that the quote unquote North doesn't understand. In some way, that novel, I believe, is written for um, an audience of kind of the liberal North. That's exactly how Maurice Crane, her agent, tries to pitch it to various publishers that there are things in this novel that readers in the North won't understand and they need to understand them. So it's pitched as a kind of political novel. Uh, But what's happening over the course as she she puts that novel down, and in 1957 and 1958, something very important is happening in Alabama politics and in Southern politics. This idea that the councils are going to kind of tamp down or temporize the hotheads and the Klan, that's not happening. What's actually happening in Alabama is it's the Klan that is radicalizing the councils. And you see this most dramatically in 1958, in the governor's race in Alabama, where the moderate candidate, the guy who, we don't remember him as a moderate, but he was a moderate in that race. of, you know, George Wallace loses to John Patterson, who is linked explicitly with the Klan who aligns himself explicitly again. And, and, and uh, Wallace tries to use this against Patterson, but fails. And so that's an example of, of, of the rise of a militant segregationist movement in Alabama that's kind of upending everything. And I think it's, it's upending, and she's seeing it too in Monroeville, right? Where Mon- there's a Klan there's a chapter that's being established in Monroeville in 1957 and 1958. And she's going home, and she can't, and the Presbyterian minister invites her out on a date, and she doesn't want to go because she's afraid she's not going to be able to keep her mouth shut. And people are going to think that she's a member of the NAACP, right? And so, and her best friend, one of her, well, not her best friend, but one of her very good friends from childhood, Riley Kelly, who's an aspiring poet, an Emory graduate actually, is editing the newspaper, and he is printing these scurrilous editorials about racial politics. So that's the context for understanding this. And try to understand that political context for why the politics, why the character of Atticus looks so different in To Kill a Mockingbird. The trick for Harper Lee in writing this new childhood novel was how to speak about racism and hypocrisy in a way that she could be heard. And what would have been clear by the late 1950s was that the people who needed to hear her most urgently were not Northerners, as she had imagined in Watchmen, nor the Klan, whom she knew didn't read books anyway, nor Negroes, as she would have called them then, whom it wouldn't have occurred to her might be an audience for her stories. The people who needed to hear her most were her own tribe, the otherwise decent white folks like Riley Kelly or the Presbyterian minister, the people who were boiling in the waters of militant resistance and had no clue that their time was almost up.
0: That's really powerful, and I think it's interesting that you tell us at another point in the book that Harper Lee, that's kind of what MLK was saying in the letter from Birmingham Jail.
1: In that famous passage from Letter from Birmingham Jail in which he talks about how he has come to believe that perhaps the white moderate is a bigger stumbling block to the progress of, of, of uh, the black race. I see Letter from Birmingham Jail as a kind of critique of, uh, I mean, as, as an important critique of the kind of figure of, of the good Southerner, of, of the decent white Southerner. And in and, and Harper Lee's own lifetime, you know, uh, one of the things I've done in the early part of this is kind of connect the Lee family to one of the most uh, gruesome. Lynchings in the recorded history in the south lynching of Claude Neal tell us about well who was Claude Neal was abducted from the jail in in, in Bruton, Alabama just south of, of uh, Just about 30 miles south of Monroeville taken across state lines and then lynched and what was a uh, I mean it was a, a thousand two thousand people came out to, to witness this lynching It was actually even advertised on radio for people to come out to this lynching and Claude Neal was lynched in a barbaric fashion. It was said even that after he was killed, children um, took sharpened sticks and poked the body. It's, it's, it's one of the most horrific uh, recorded examples. It was used by the NAACP to help galvanize um, uh, new political support for an anti-lynching bill that was filibustered once again by Southern Senators. This ha- uh, but he was lynched in Jackson County, Florida, which was A.C. Lee's home county, where A.C. Lee's mother and father were buried, where his, his brothers and sisters still lived. So it's hard to, and A.C. Lee had been in Jackson County nine months earlier to bury his mother, and it, uh, the National Guard was called out to put down uh, uh, a riot that the lynch mob uh, waged on the town square in Mariana, Florida the next morning where they were terrorizing uh, white merchants and the, and the black employees. Um, so it was a big deal. It was a huge deal. And it's hard to imagine that Harper, or that A.C. That Lee, A.C. Lee writes about it, not in his editorial page, but he covers it. And it's hard to imagine that he didn't know about it intimately. And some of the details of the abduction of Claude Neal and Bruton um, follow very closely the details of the of the lynch mob that showed up in, on the town square and make them in, in yeah. the fictional version.
0: You said, uh, you talk about how, and the book uh, describes this very clearly, about the Klan's growing activity in uh, Monroeville. So we're going to go to 1959. Harper Lee has now turned in the manuscript of To Kill a Mockingbird. We know that her best friend from childhood was Truman Capote. Mm-hmm. They used the same number five Underwood typewriter right, right. that her father had given them to peck out stories with from the time they were like five, six years old. Right. So Capote says to her, I'm going to start working on this book uh, about a family, the Clapper family in Kansas who were brutally murdered. I need you to come with me. And of course, we know what that book turned out to be in cold blood. Yeah, yeah. But you say to us, and because of that, Harper Lee missed what happened at the Monroeville Christmas parade. And it's important because it once again makes the whole issue of where white good-hearted, if that's the word, southerners stood in relation to the more extremist things going on. Tell us what happened.
1: So what happened was there was a the, clan, the revived clan chapter had gone to the Kiwanis Club who runs the, the Christmas parade, and they object to the fact that the the marching band from the all-black high school participates in the parade they've been doing that for about seven or eight years and they said we think you shouldn't do it and they said no we're going to do it and then they but eventually they go to the principal of the black school and they put pressure on him and he withdraws it and so then the Kiwanis Club uh, publishes a big full-length editorial and say well we're gonna Stop the whole thing. We're going to, there's going to be no Christmas parade, and it's all the Klan's fault, because they they stole you know the spirit of Christmas and and that kind of thing. And in and it was in the Kiwanis Club, you know, this was the Kiwanis Club standing up to the Klan, and and in the kind of lore of Monroeville, this was a was a big moment for the Kiwanis Club and the kind of.
0: Well, what do you make of that? Well, this is it, 1959. It is. in the heart of Alabama. Yeah,
1: yeah, oh. that's right. And 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 that is a a, it's a nice. It's a good story. It's an interesting story to tell, and, and it's, and it's, it's good. But but what's interesting about it is to is to understand how that sheds a light on what's going on in Monroeville, because you know uh, the Kiwanis Club. Uh, they were they were they they canceled that thing because there are there were officials in the county who were close with the clan right yeah. um if they were really in control and, and if there really was had a had a had a handle on the clan then they wouldn't have canceled the parade they would just would have held it you know it doesn't matter what the clan said but they didn't they weren't in control and and the clan was very had a lot of support and had a lot of power within uh, Monroe County, they had a lot of power in the governor's office, right? And so this idea that the good white folks in Monroeville stood up to the Klan and showed them who's the boss and, and told them, you know, what it is, that, that's not really what was going on. You know, the Klan still has a hotline to John Patterson's office in 19, 1959 and 1960.
0: Oh, we got to take another break. So we're live at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. We'll have more with Joe Crispino and our live audience uh, in just a minute. two-way street. We're here at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library with Joe Crispino, the uh, Jimmy Carter Professor of American History at Emory University. We're talking about your new book, Joe, Atticus Finch, The Biography. Uh, one of the things that's so interesting is you tell us this story of the movie version, uh, which of course ended up starring Gregory Peck, and it's not just sort of fun trivia, it's, it really fits into the entire theme of your book, which is trying to understand what that movie is going to tell us about who those people were uh, during the time in which they lived,
1: right? Yeah, well, I mean, Harper Lee gives us Atticus Finch, but many other people have a hand in kind of shaping the character, right? I mean, one of the big ones is Horton Foote. Horton Foote is the screenwriter who adapts the novel. Who, who
0: in those days was not particularly well-known, but went on to become one of the finest American playwrights, A Trip to Bountiful, among other uh, works. Well, I mean, his
1: big breakthrough is with, with Mockingbird. He wins yeah. the Oscar. But, yeah. I mean, he, he was well-known, but not, he wasn't the... He wasn't as, Horton as, Foot. As, He wasn't Horton Foot. yeah, <laughs> that's right, that's right. And so he does important work in the adaptation, and in some ways, humanizing Atticus, right? Because there there are scenes in the in the movie that are not in the novel. Like, for example, the scene in which Scout and Jim are in their bedrooms discussing, uh, you know, did, was mama pretty? Was she nice? And then, the, and then you have Atticus on the porch with the open window hearing them talking about uh, their mother. And you see Atticus as a single father, right? And the sadness of having lost the mother, which is not in the novel, right? And the other thing that's, that's important in that scene is closely connected, with what follows when Judge Taylor Comes to the porch and asks Atticus to take Tom Robinson's case. We don't know, we don't see that. That's not dramatized in the novel. That we learn that in retrospect. But here Horton Foote wanted to frame Atticus, you know, accepting the challenge. Right? This is the dilemma: does he or doesn't he? And he stands up to it. But what's even more interesting is, Horton Foote writes the scene. He doesn't give a lot of directions as to how Atticus needs to act that scene. But then one, another great. Uh, Thing that I found was out in the Academy Archives in Los Angeles, where you can go out there and and see the original script that Gregory Peck used, and he's got all these notes and how he wants to act the different scenes, and in that scene, he's you know he says, you know, "Be alive with the problem." Atticus is aroused. That's what he wrote in the in the side, and, um, which is. You know, interesting, but um, but yeah. So he and 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 you can see you know the way Peck uh, you know the way he portrays that scene. You know, Atticus almost like Atticus has been waiting for this to happen, right? That, that he's he stands up to it. This is his moment, which is. Not at all clear in the novel, and, yeah. and this is all other shadings where Atticus is becoming this central kind of heroic figure. That's right.
0: Again, if the movie really, really goes much further yeah. in giving us this sense of the great liberal uh, uh, fighter, crusader That's for right. justice in the bigoted South. Yeah. Uh, okay, trivia. Uh, Harper Lee wanted who to play Atticus Finch initially?
1: Well, Maybe we should ask the audience. Who did
0: she want? Who would you want for Atticus Finch thinking about this?: This is actually important
1: because it, it shows you who she's thinking about and how she's thinking about the character. Uh, that was d- 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 talked about. but This is a person that she wrote directly, gave a copy of the book to, and said, would you please do this? Would you please consider this? Spencer. Yes, Spencer, Spencer Tracy. Tracy. Good.
0: Who said that? Yeah. All right, old give that man a toaster up. Which, which is important,
1: <laughs> I think, because it shows that she's imagining Atticus as a much older person.
0: Yeah. Uh, he couldn't do it. He was working on another picture. Yeah, it wasn't he, was he rejected it. it, but he had work to do. Uh, I love this. The great crooner expressed interest in playing the role. Who am I talking about? Another gra- older great crooner. Bing Crosby, Crosby. that would have been fascinating. He would have played it with his priest collar. (laughs)
1: Right,
0: right. All right. Let's talk about, again, substantive aspects of what happened in the screenplay. Mm -hmm. So Horton Foote, being much more attuned to and sensitive about the reality of life in the South, writes a summation to the jury for Atticus Finch. Mm-hmm. And here's what you say. You say that Foote, in writing the summation to the jury, essentially is telling us that Atticus isn't addressing other people who are prejudiced, the jurors, and for that matter, the, the community. He's also looking inward at the prejudice that he feels about himself. You tell us that that's what Horton Foote had in mind.
1: Well, this what had happened is that Peck, the producer and the director had written foot and asked for him to change the summation that Atticus right. gives at right. the end of the trial and it's not clear what they didn't like about the original version but what's fascinating is that uh, foot, sends back a revised summation, right? But then he, he, he adds this letter. He's like, I want you to keep this in mind because he wasn't on the set while they were doing the, the filming. And he talks about how it's important to remember that Atticus is not uh, someone free of prejudice, but he, he is struggling in this summation and, and through this process to overcome his own racial prejudice and that he speaks from that position to fellow to his fellow citizens there who, who would have, you know, become trying to overcome their prejudice. And what's fascinating is to think about how Horton Foote, his own history, he has some, be- some beautiful memoir Horton Foote wrote yeah. about a time when and he was five years old in his mother's kitchen, his mother's fixing dinner, and he's going through a cabinet and he finds these white robes that were his father's. And he said, and he said what are these? And his mother kind of stumbles and hedges and haws and says, that's your father's uh, Ku Klux Klan robe, and he's, uh, but he's not doing this anymore, and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And so and, and, and Horton Foote uh, you know, is, is, want, is, is trying to warn these Hollywood filmmakers about what they're about to do to turn Atticus into this noble here. He said it's important, and this is the title of the chapter, it's important that Atticus not become too much of the noble man. And of course, that's exactly what he becomes in that summation, where we're supposed to see that in the, in the, in the way Foote wrote it, we're supposed to see Atticus interspersed with shots of the jurors themselves, we see none of that in the film. We see that scene from the juror's box. We are the jury, and we just see Atticus in the back. And we see Atticus giving this this great kind of liberal speech where he becomes, I say in the book, kind of the, this kind of um, handsome, dignified, blandly white face of mid-20th century American liberalism. I, I think there, there are great anachronisms in the in the film and in the novel. I think one of the things you said earlier I agree with completely is that uh, with Watchmen the genie is out of the bottle and there's no there's no yeah. putting the the noble, you know The completely heroic Atticus back together again. And is that but, all right? Or not? We'll go ahead. Finish. Well, I right. think I, I think it is all right I think it's I think it's a good thing In the story that I tell it's not to say that that character is irrelevant I think that character is more relevant than ever because of that because of the way we can understand him now. And what I try to tell in this book, I think this book, has, uh, this story of Atticus Finch struggling with his character has a lot of resonance for our own political moment. Because I think there are a lot of parallels between the, 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 the South of the late 1950s and America today. In both of them, you see the rise of right-wing political movements that people thought would never have come back. You know, In the late 1940s, in the post-war South, it was a real moment of kind of a progressive hope in the South. You had, you had young governors being elected, at Ellis Arnold here in, in Georgia. You had Big Jim Folsom. You had at that time Strom Thurmond, who before he became, you know, Strom Thurmond was seen as a progressive, you know, war, post you know war veteran, that kind of thing. And they were talking about repealing the poll tax and that kind of thing. Brown changes so much, right? And you see the rise of this kind of reactionary, se- militant segregationist movement in which, which are electing these kind of buffoonish characters, right? Who never, never could have gotten elected outside of that, that reactionary moment. Lester Maddox? Lester Maddox was a joke in Georgia politics. Ross Barnett was a joke in Mississippi politics, you know? Uh, John Patterson was a nobody. John Patterson had won office just because his dad had been assassinated, right? And he wins with the Klan support. So, so it's fascinating to see how Harper Lee is struggling to make sense of a kind of, what she understands as a kind of principled conservatism of her father in the midst of this reactionary moment where conservatives are not standing up to the reactionaries in their midst. No. And, and she's trying to figure out how to, how to speak to those people and how to get them to, to do something and how to, how to get people to hear her.
0: I think you just gave us a wonderful place to conclude our conversation. Because your book, Joe, Atticus Finch, a Biography is so rich, rich in uh, material that helps us try to piece together uh, who we were in the South uh, from the day that Jean Louise finds out her dad is a member of the White Citizen Council, going back to what he would have been like when, uh, when uh, he, he was part of an attempt to stop a lynching. I mean, you have helped us understand the South through uh, uh, two pieces of literature, and uh, I really found it a, 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 a wonderful book, and I really appreciate your taking time to talk to us. Thank you so much. And thank though. you to the audience here. At thank you, My conversation with Joe Crespino was recorded in front of a live audience at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. Atticus Finch has traveled a long, long way since Harper Lee first brought him to life back in 1960 when Mockingbird was published. And his journey continues to this day. Later this year, he'll be on Broadway for the first time. Jeff Daniels is set to play Atticus in a theatrical adaptation of the novel. The script was written by Aaron Sorkin, who's best known for his TV series The West Wing and his screenplay for The Social Network. But for a while earlier this year, there were questions about whether the play would ever get off the ground. Once again, the issue was how Atticus would be portrayed. Here's the story. Before she died, Harper Lee herself gave Broadway producer Scott Rudin permission to do a play based on Mockingbird. But in March of this year, the Lee estate tried to stop the production by insisting the contract stipulated that the script must be true to the novel and true to the characters. The estate argued that the Sorkin adaptation deviates too much from the original and therefore violated the contract. And you can guess how the script deviates. Sorkin didn't want to simply give audiences the same heroic figure that Gregory Peck played in the wildly successful film version of Mockingbird. The defendant is not guilty. But somebody in this courtroom is. Sorkin believed that Atticus, like any good character in fiction, should have a story arc that he should evolve. According to the New York Times, the stage script shows that change in Atticus's thinking through his relationship with the family housekeeper, Calpurnia. In September of last year, Sorkin told New York Magazine about the storyline he was creating. He becomes Atticus Finch by the end of the play, Sorkin said, and while he's going along, he has a kind of running argument with Calpurnia. He's in denial about his neighbors and friends in the world around him. That is as racist as it is that a Macon County jury could possibly put Tom Robinson in jail when it's so obvious what happened. Atticus, Sorkin said, becomes an apologist for these people. But Sorkin's script would show him making a moral evolution by the play's end. Carter, the lawyer for the Lee of State, didn't like Sorkin's interpretation. In an email that the New York Times reported on, Carter wrote that the play's Atticus is, quote, more like an edgy sitcom dad in the 21st century than the iconic Atticus of the novel. These concerns aren't merely cosmetic, she wrote, but require a fundamental rethinking of character and plot. So in March, Carter filed her lawsuit to stop the play in a federal district court in Alabama, where she probably figured her argument would be received by sympathetic Southern judges. Rutin countersued in New York because, well, you know how Northerners feel about the South. The Rudin suit demanded $10 million in damages from Harper Lee's estate because the suit claimed that was how much money producers stood to lose if doubts about whether the play would ever actually open kept potential backers from investing in the show. And then Rudin made a novel proposal. He offered to stage the Sorkin play in federal court with Jeff Daniels playing Atticus. He reasoned that only by seeing the play could a determination be made about whether it was true to the themes and spirit of the novel. But that unique staging never happened. Just last month, both sides dropped their lawsuits and declared that the production of To Kill a Mockingbird would in fact go forward. Neither side would say what the agreement was that resolved their dispute. And so the show with Jeff Daniels in the lead goes into rehearsal in September, previews begin in November, and it will open in December at New York's Schubert Theater. We probably won't know until then whether Aaron Sorkin's adaptation gives us the iconic fighter for justice that Harper Lee wrote in Mockingbird, or the morally conflicted member of the White Citizens' Council and defender of segregation she gave the world in Go Set a Watchman. And no matter what Sorkin's script finally tells us about Atticus Finch, it won't end the Southern struggle to understand how to put to rest the bigotry and searing injustice of the past as we become a region of rich diversity and opportunity today. (laughs) That's all the time we have for today. Our producer is Olivia Rheingold. Olivia edited today's show. I'm Bill Nygut. See you next week for another two-way street.